Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week, and gosh, do we have a big show for you tonight. Joining me is Washington correspondent for the Australian newspaper, Adam Crichton, to talk about the sudden rise of Republican nominee hopeful Nikki Haley. I'll also be joined by federal LNP Senator Susan McDonald to talk about why Australia should be celebrating our mining industry, not deriding it, and also by digital political strategist James Flynn, who will help us decide whether or not the coalition has the proverbial chutzpah to take advantage of Labor's recent slide in the polls. But first, as we get closer and closer to the Republican primaries, we've seen a couple of candidates other than Donald Trump gain momentum only to fizzle. The first is, of course, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who was widely touted for a long time to be the logical replacement for Trump as frontrunner, given his MAGA-style policies. However, he was never going to out-Trump Trump, and he simply failed to pick up steam. The second was entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, for the record, I am still a massive fan of Ramaswamy, and he is clearly streaks ahead of the pack when it comes to intelligence, vivacity, and originality, aside from Trump himself, of course. But Vivek was sadly overpowered by other candidates in the Republican nominee debates. This wasn't really through any fault of his own. The debates were quite poorly moderated, and likely thanks to a lack of experience in that particular arena, he simply got talked over. I've been pushing this lie what? all you week, Nikki. You want to go and defund Israel? Just, you want to okay, let me address that. China? I'm glad you, you brought that up. Go and give you I'm going to address Russia? each of those right now. This is the false lies of a professional politician. There you have it. So the reality make America is, less safe. you have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, the foreign policy experience that you all have shows in the pointless wars we've gotten into. I have to address that. So our relationship with Israel will never be stronger than by the end of my first term. This, I think, stalled his momentum, and he went from looking like he could take outright second place in the polls to settling back into third or fourth. Then along came former governor of South Carolina and former United Nations ambassador under the Trump administration, Nikki Haley, who, thanks to some quite powerful performances in the nominee debates, is surging in the polls, moving to second place in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago. Our exclusive 7 News Emerson College poll shows 49% of Republican voters in the Granite State still favor former President Donald Trump. But former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has surged to second with 18%. 
She's followed by former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie with 9%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped to 7%. And entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy is polling at 5%. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson got less than 1%. Well, Dan, for the last year, we've been looking at a Ron DeSantis-Donald Trump race. And now it looks like Nikki Haley is the alternative instead of Ron DeSantis at this point. You know, about a year ago, Ron DeSantis was about 17%. Now he's down to 7%. And if we look at a candidate like Nikki Haley, since August, she's gone from 4% up to 18%. She's even beating Joe Biden in New Hampshire, which Donald Trump uh, currently hasn't managed to do. In a hypothetical presidential matchup, Haley beats Biden 45% to 39%. Where she's strong is with the independent vote. So while Trump is very strong with Republican voters, Haley is actually competing very closely in the primary with the independent vote. Haley is the only Republican in our poll to beat Biden in a hypothetical head-to-head, -head, and that includes Trump. 47% of New Hampshire voters say they would vote for Biden in a repeat of the 2020 matchup. 42% picked Trump. Now, that doesn't mean she's doing better than Trump generally against Biden. Trump is still ahead of Biden in the polls in most of the swing states, at least according to Morning Consult. But it's still an interesting result for the New Hampshire poll. And the momentum seems to have worked for Nikki Haley. It was announced this week that the powerful political network Americans for Prosperity Action, which is closely tied to billionaire industrialist Charles Koch, has endorsed her and plans to launch a multi-million dollar ad campaign this week in a number of Super Tuesday states and all early voting states. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that someone like Charles Koch and, its, and his affiliates would endorse Nikki Haley. She's an establishment pick. Polite, safe, acceptably conservative for the leftist media and cultural forces, and not America first. Perfect for the Democrat-Republican uniparty and big business. Certainly, Ron DeSantis made similar aspersions when asked his opinion on the endorsement. Um, the Koch brothers yesterday, I believe, yesterday or this morning, endorsed Nikki Haley. What are your thoughts of that? Well, look, I think that their network has um, has taken certain positions uh, that uh, are conservative, some that are not. I mean, for example, they are uh, not someone that wants to control immigration. I think they've supported open borders. So Nikki is somebody that is very weak on immigration. She is not going to get that border secure. She would, of course, not build a wall and she will not deport illegals who are here. And so I think that that gives her some synergy with that group. I think the other thing is, is, you know, they've been very supportive of reducing criminal sentences and releasing people from prison. Uh, I think that that's bad policy. I think that that has failed in places like California. Uh, I think we've got to be tough on crime. We need to get these criminals off the streets. But I think they see in someone like Nikki, somebody that's going to be more aligned with establishment interests. But hang on, you might think, surely Nikki Haley isn't that bad. She worked for Trump, after all. Well, yes, she did for a time. But that doesn't mean she's not a rhino, that is, Republican in name only. Have a look at this ad that was put together by MAGA Inc. when Haley announced her run for president early this year. Nikki Haley making it official. She will have to directly challenge Donald Trump himself. Donald Trump can't beat Hillary Clinton. His negatives are so high. His his cap is at 35%. It is impossible for him to win a general. Donald Trump is everything I taught my children not to do in kindergarten. He's just an embarrassment to the Republican Party. A man who has filed 
filed for bankruptcy four times. Obama's address took a number of jabs at the rhetoric of Donald Trump, and then many were surprised when the Republican response did the same. Nikki Haley, in her response to the State of the Union address, saying Republicans should resist, quote, the siren call of the angriest voices. We must resist that temptation. She confirmed she was referring to you, among others. There are a lot of questions that Donald Trump hasn't answered. It is amazing. I'm an accountant. You could be undergoing an audit. There's no reason he can't release last year's tax returns. Nikki Haley is now coming out, criticizing her former boss, telling Politico in an extensive new piece, quote, I don't think he's going to be in the picture. I don't think he can. This is one more project that Donald Trump is doing. Trump University, Trump Vodka, Trump Airlines, Trump Mortgage, all failed projects. This is one more project. That's not who we want as president. We will not allow that in our country. Not great bona fides displayed by Nikki Haley if you're a voter looking for someone who's not, you know, Dick Cheney in a dress. But that's not all. Haley, like so many establishment politicians in the US, both Republican and Democrat, is, for lack of a better term, a warmonger. She is of the mentality that American intervention in foreign conflicts, no matter how futile, is a moral imperative. This attitude was on full display during the Republican nominee debate in August when she criticized Vivek Ramaswamy on foreign policy. A win for Russia is a win for China. We have to know that. Ukraine is the first line of defense for us. And the problem that Vivek doesn't understand is he wants to hand Ukraine to Russia. He wants to let China eat Taiwan. He wants to go and stop funding Israel. You don't do that to friends. What you do instead is you have the backs of your friends. Ukraine is a front line of defense. Putin has said, if Russia, once Russia takes Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. That's a world war. We're trying to prevent war. Look at what Putin did today. He killed Pergozin. When I was at the UN, the Russian ambassador suddenly died. This guy is a murderer, and you are choosing a murderer over, over a pro-American country. Now, while that rhetoric might sound all nice and fraternal, it's code for let's sink our teeth into every foreign war we can. And why wouldn't Nikki Haley have this attitude to war? War is very profitable if you're in the right business, and Haley certainly is. Not only was she on the board of Boeing for about a year, Boeing being one of the top defense contractors for US federal agencies, she still holds about $250,000 worth of Boeing stocks. It's very much in her best financial interests for that particular defense contractor to be doing good business. However, while many MAGA Republicans may dislike Nikki Haley for all of the above and then some, facts are facts. She is doing well in the polls. She did perform very well at the debates. She is polite, safe, and acceptably conservative. She is the establishment pick, and as a result, she will, absolutely, attract the support of big business and big super PACs. She's already done so with Charles Koch and Americans for Prosperity Action. And unfortunately, Donald Trump, while so far ahead of his competition in the polls it's laughable, is tied up in court for the foreseeable future, to put it mildly. 
It is going to be horribly difficult for Trump to maintain a campaign in 2024 on top of the political persecution he's currently facing. As such, there is, I think, certainly a chance, however small, that Nikki Haley may wind up the Republican nominee. You know, I have long said that the first female president of the United States of America will be a Republican. The problem with Democrat women is that they relentlessly play the woman card, which simply pits people against each other. We saw that front and center with Hillary Clinton and look what happened there. Republican women, on the other hand, tend to eschew that kind of identity politics, which is a more unifying, less irritating approach. Which is why I think a Republican woman will be the first female POTUS. That first female president of the United States could be Nikki Haley. If it is, well, isn't that just a terrible waste of history? Joining me to discuss all of this and more is Washington correspondent for the Australian newspaper, Adam Crichton. Adam Crichton, it is so fabulous to have you here this evening. How are you? Well, thanks. It's been very cold over here. We had a couple of uh, two-degree days, but it's back to 12, so a balmy 12 now. A, a nice balmy 12 in Washington, D.C. Well, it's dis it's disgustingly yep. hot in Australia, so I'm, I'm quite a little bit jealous, actually. 12 degrees sounds delightful. Now, Adam, <laughs> there has been a, a bit of upset about Nikki Haley's history with Donald Trump. I mean, I've just done a big diatribe about how unhappy I am that she's rising in the polls in New Hampshire. Um, she confirmed in 2021 that she would not run against him if uh, he ran again uh, for the 2024 election and yet here she is running. Um, what on earth has changed? Well, I think what changed was 2022 and, and when everyone was mocking Donald Trump um, for for what at that stage was, was a proposed run. I mean, you know, we didn't know until the end of last year that Donald Trump was going to run, but throughout all of last year and especially after the midterm elections, you might remember that uh, the, uh, the less successful performance of Republicans or at least a performance that was worse than expected, was blamed on him. And um, and a lot of people thought that he wouldn't even run. Mm. And she was no doubt taking all that in and thought, well, this is her big opportunity. I mean, of course, politicians only say what's in their own interests and they change their mind all the time, of course. She's clearly changed her mind. Mm. And I don't begrudge her changing her mind. I mean, we all change. You know, she's an ambitious woman and she, you know, she wants the highest office in the land and I don't blame her for running. Um but, yeah, she definitely, you know, she did change her mind, uh, but she's miscalculated, I think, because as we've seen throughout this year, I mean, Trump's, you know, despite all the indictments, has just gone up and up and up in the polls. It's quite extraordinary, actually. No one would have predicted it. I didn't predict it. You know, all the mainstream journalists last year were saying, this is a disaster, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis is going to get it. Uh, anyway, we've all been proved very wrong. So, Adam, tell me, what are your thoughts on Nikki Haley as a candidate per se? She's not necessarily in line with that kind of populist trend that we've seen in Europe with Gert Wilders or, or um, Javier Malay in Argentina, is she? Yeah, she's, she's certainly not. I mean, the mainstream media in the US is really boosting her right now, building her up. Uh, they all hate Trump. They don't like DeSantis and they see her as an opportunity 
to kind of drag the Republican Party back to kind of the bushier, if you like, the more a neocon, the more traditional uh, country club uh, Republican Party, which frankly is all but dead. Uh, mm. So I don't think it's going to work. I mean, her policies are very, very different from a Donald Trump's, especially on foreign policy and also Ron DeSantis's and uh, Vivek as well, mm. of course. Um, so, and, and, you know, frankly, the premise of this conversation is that she's booming in the polls. She's not booming in the polls. I mean, this is just, this is all a media creation. I mean, she's still single digits. And I think I saw a poll today, Trump's 68% uh, support amongst Republican voters. And DeSantis is, is still second. Okay, he's a long way behind, but he's still second. And then uh, Nikki Haley is about, I think she was 9%. Now, if you assume that, you know, let's say DeSantis drops out and all the others drop out, well, lots of DeSantis voters will vote for Trump. Mm. And, of course, all of Ramaswamy's voters will definitely vote for Trump because, because he really supports Trump and he likes Trump. So, so I don't think she has any chance, actually. <laughs> I mean, I just don't see it happening. Well, so, he- I mean, you know, I could be wrong. I mean, we've got Iowa coming up in January and, of course, New Hampshire. And whoever wins those state contexts, you know, they they uh, get a lot of momentum. They can get a lot of momentum, and then that can really change the race. She may do well, but I just I just don't see it. Mm, well, that's the the interesting thing. You you mentioned New Hampshire. Uh, the reason one of the reasons this media narrative is, has been constructed, and she's pushing it along that she's quote unquote surging in the polls, is because there was one poll. It was an it was an Emerson poll um, that had her at sort. I think you know sort of around eighteen percent, like well ahead of DeSantis yes. and Vivek, um, and beating Biden. But uh, can you really drum up a lot on just well, one state? No, I mean, well, also the thing is, it's just one poll. I mean, the mm. thing about, you know, I remember in Australia, you've basically got the two main polls, right, and, and you kind of know when they come out. But in this country, there's literally a poll every day and they're all quite uh, reputable um, and they all say different things. So I think to build something off that one Emerson poll, you know, is just, it's it's silly. I mean, it's worth pointing out the betting markets, which I find more interesting, actually, if you look at the betting markets, because that's where people who know things are putting in money, right? Mm. Uh she has surged ahead. She's now second, uh, you know, she's now most likely to win the Republican nomination after Trump. Yeah. She's clearly ahead of DeSantis now. Uh, but I still don't think that she'll get it, but but she is ahead of DeSantis. There's there's no question about that. And, of course, the big news this week was that she got the Koch brothers' uh, support. You know, they're Republican billionaires. Uh, you know, how much that helps, I don't know, because the family is very associated with the old Republican Party. And, and as we were saying early, you know, the grassroots of the Republican Party now is very Trumpish, uh, and they they don't like warmongering. Uh, they like free speech, and she's a bit she's a bit against free speech. I mean, she said some quite censorious things that she'd ban this, ban that. Um, it's interesting. Some some high profile Washington Post correspondents have come out and supported her, which <laughs> um, which I think is the kiss of death. Really, I mean, you know, basically saying that she's the one for the Republican Party. We have to get her. Uh, I think the CEO of JP Morgan now supports her. I mean, this is not a good look for, you know, for your ordinary Trump supporters or or your ordinary Republican supporters. Um, So, look, there's still, you know, a month and a bit to go until the primaries start. Let's see. But, you know, Trump looks unassailable. I mean, I think the poll I mentioned earlier, he was 68%. I mean, that's extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable how he has maintained that support, particularly since they're you know throwing sort of political um, accusations at him, left, right, and centre. So on top of mounting his, oh, yeah. his well, campaign, I mean, you've got. I mean, I think my column next week. I'm just going to say that some of these, you know, the over-the-top rhetoric from the left 
against him. I mean, some woman here last week likened him to Hitler. <laughs> no, sorry, worse than Hitler. No, she actually said on MSNBC that he was more dangerous to the world than Hitler. Now, like, oh, that sort of God. stuff is so obviously ridiculous that I think it actually helps him. Mm. No, I think, I, think so. I think so too. And, like, I don't know what the Koch brothers are thinking supporting Nikki Haley because, as you said, yes, she's done well in, in one poll, but she's still way, way behind Trump, way behind Trump in, in all of the other polls. Do you think maybe that it's like a pipe dream they have because she's kind of the safe establishment, like, acceptably conservative pick? They think, oh, hey, look, yeah. yeah. Do you think that's what it is? I mean... I think a lot of it revolves around foreign policy, which to the ordinary punter is not, you know, not top of mind maybe. I mean, there is when there's a war, but yeah. not, not at the moment. Um, but I think for the establishment, foreign policy is very important because it means a huge amount of money going to various defence companies and so forth, and that really matters. I think she's been a lot less critical of COVID uh, restrictions, whereas, of course, DeSantis has been extremely critical. Mm. And big pharma, if you like, the pharmaceutical industry really hates any criticism of, of vaccine mandates and all that stuff, obviously. They're very sensitive about it. Uh, so she's definitely the establishment candidate. You know, she's the Biden of the Republican Party, I would say. Um, <laughs> and frankly, she and Biden will have a lot more in common in terms of policy uh, than she and Trump or, or mm. she and DeSantis. I mean, mm. the... You know, the box is Republican-Democrat. I think as you've seen with the, you know, debates over Israel-Palestine and so forth, I mean, they're kind of meaningless. I mean, there are huge differences within each party, and I would argue the differences within each party are actually far larger than than between the two parties. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes that makes total sense. And look, on on the subject of her foreign, you know, foreign policy, as as she, she's a warmonger, basically, that's sort of the the polite way of putting it. Um, she was on the board of Boeing, which is a major U.S. defence uh, contractor for a yeah. year. Um, it was real, revealed earlier this year she still has about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of Boeing stock, so she stands to benefit financially. <laughs> like, it's a, lot, it's a lot of money. She stands to benefit financially, doesn't she? If there is a war because that means Boeing is going to be doing particularly well. Is that how that whole establishment kind of comes together through that military industrial complex? Yeah, look, I think it does, but it's not just the military companies per se, the arms manufacturers. It's all the think tanks, all the, you know, all of the consulting, all of it. I mean, the media too, frankly, benefits from war. I mean, there's there's a lot of industries that benefit from war. It's not just the arms manufacturers. So yeah, the big end of town definitely benefits. It's not your corner stores. It's not small shops that benefit from war. Mm. Um, in fact, it's terrible for them because generally taxes go up, so they get taxed more, and some of that tax revenue goes to you know to the arms manufacturers. So, and you know, you saw the share prices when you know when the terrorist attack happened on the seventh of October. It's quite interesting. You can see on that very day uh, that there was likely to be a war in the Middle East. You can see the share prices of all the big U.S. Uh, defense companies jumped by about four or five percent, and that's oh, a huge gosh. move. Uh, you know, for share prices, right? And I think the same happened last year with Ukraine. You know, back in back in uh, back in February. But I think I think her warmongering positions are going to, well, especially on Ukraine, are going to come back to bite because that war is looking terrible for Ukraine and therefore the US. Mm. They've spent hundreds of billions of dollars, and what do they have to show for it? They've got hundreds of thousands of dead people. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't think it's going to be a good political look next year. No, and she seems to be of that um, neocon mentality that American, and we saw this when she was screaming at Vivek in one of the debates, She of the mentality <coughs> that American interventionism in foreign conflict, however futile, is actually 
a moral imperative somehow. Is that how she thinks? Yeah. Well, that is, you know, a certain army. Most of the US intellectual class does believe that. They think mm. the US is is you know, has every right to to basically intervene anywhere in the world to spread democracy and, you know, spread freedom. I mean, <laughs> these concepts sound nice and I'm not against those concepts, but we've seen over the last 20 years in particular, and in fact, going back much further, that it just ends in absolute disaster. Mm. I mean, you know, my view is you should basically leave other countries alone, let them sort their own stuff out, okay? Yeah. And 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 also don't be arrogant, you know, don't, don't treat other countries other countries, especially countries that go back much further than, than the United States, don't don't treat them with contempt. Mm. I think that you know I think that's actually the source of a lot of the problems in the world right now. Yes, well, I, I, that just brings to mind a comment that um, Andrew Hastie made a while ago. He said that democracy, you mm. know, former military, in order for democracy to take root in certain in mm. in the world, certain conditions need to be in place for that to actually happen. And that's what he learnt um, overseas was that actually sometimes it's just not going to happen because the conditions just just aren't there. I think Nikki Haley needs that's right. needs exactly. to realize that. He's exactly right. Yeah, she needs to realize He's exactly that. Exactly right. Now, Adam. Uh, yeah, just... but she's not going to. No, she's not <laughs> so, going to. No. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, but but you know, it's good to see. You know, it's worth stressing the three other main candidates: uh, Ramaswamy, DeSantis, and Trump. They're all pretty much of the same view on foreign policy, I would say. DeSantis yeah. is, you know, trying to have a foot in both in both uh, ponds. But um, but I, but I think that that shows you that the bulk of the Republican Party is not with Haley on this issue. No. And. No. Uh, Increasingly, more and more Democrats are dissatisfied with with the war in Ukraine too. So I think that's going to it's going to come back to bite Biden and I think Haley next year. Mm, I, I certainly think so too. Americans are simply not not that into it. <laughs> now, Adam, before we go, I have to ask you. I'm totally jumping sideways. Uh, you saw the new Napoleon movie a couple of days ago. <laughs> you are a massive Napoleon fan. That is, in fact, Napoleon in that portrait behind you, and his biography it is, it is, is up there. <laughs> Tell because I'm, I'm thinking of seeing it this weekend in, you know, two minutes or less. What is your review of the new of Napoleon movie? Uh, well, look, it was a great film. I recommend that you see it. Uh, it wasn't excessively long. It wasn't three hours or anything. I think it was just over two hours. The cinematography was beautiful, uh, as you'd expect from Ridley Scott. But, but the things that stuck out for me is that you have um, uh, the main actor, Phoenix, um, I can't remember his first name. Joaquin but Phoenix. He's about 50 and he's playing a 22-year-old most of the time. <laughs> oh, no. And he's also speaking with an American accent the entire time, which is really, it just, it just seems strange, right? I mean, they should at least give him a French accent or something. Mm. Um, and it's very it's very negative about Napoleon too, I think. It, it, it kind of paints him as just lucky and a bit of a brute and he was good with tactics. Uh, so it says nothing about what he did to the reforms of the French uh, legal system or, you know, how he's, he tried to stamp out anti-Semitism throughout Europe, how he got rid of a lot of these uh, privileges of the church and, and, uh, and the aristocracy. Uh, so there was a lot of good that he did uh, that was just completely ignored. And also I think it, 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 it put far too much emphasis on Josephine, um, you know, who was his wife for most of his his life, um, I guess it's a movie, you've got to have a bit of a love thing in it, but mm. but I think she was made out to be far more important than she actually was. Mm. But that I guess it has to, you know, you know, there has to be a strong woman, right? So maybe <laughs> oh, yes. that's why they did that. Yes, nowadays, yes, <laughs> if you can't, if you're not making a, a movie about a woman, then somewhere there has to be a strong female character behind that's the man. That's right, exactly. <laughs>
<laughs> yes. Exactly. Hollywood has, hashtag anyway, affirmative action. I will say, I will, I will see it. I'll, I'll sit there and, and be quietly critical and enjoy the cinematography. <laughs> Adam Crichton, you're right, marvellous. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. And Merry Christmas. We'll That's see you in the new year. Yes, Merry Christmas, Daisy. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>
where governments act unpredictably and unreasonably, they increase risk for investment. So what's to be done about this chronic undermining of investment in mining in Australia? Joining me to discuss is federal LNP Senator, the wonderful Susan MacDonald. Senator, it is so lovely to have you here this evening. How have you been? I've been terrific. And of course, as you started with Daisy, celebrating uh, National Mining and National Agriculture Day last week was a great reminder of the things that keep us strong in this country, of the things that have provided incredible prosperity. And uh, I was just delighted to meet you and, and uh, to be able to celebrate those two great days uh, with you, along with hundreds of other people who also are uh, supportive of Australia's prosperity and great jobs and, uh, and as you've said, services for Australia. Yes, it was the most wonderful couple of days celebrating um, National Mining Day. And again, Dean, so fantastic to meet you. And it's so nice to have you, this, you here yeah. this evening. Now, Senator, mining is incredibly profitable for Australia. We know this mm -hmm. with the coal industry reportedly paying $58 billion in wages over the last 10 years. So why is the industry under attack? Well, this is an excellent question, Daisy, because Australia is a primary industries nation and mining leads the way. Uh, our three biggest export earners, our three biggest corporate taxpayers, our three uh, biggest contributors to our economy are, of course, coal, iron ore and gas. And just the only thing that changes is the order that they, they come up in. Those are the industries that pay $83 billion worth of corporate tax last year, $47 billion worth of royalties last year, and you've already identified the billions of dollars of salaries, about 50% more than the average Australian salary is what uh, miners receive. And of course, it's not just the people who are directly employed in mining, the 280 odd thousand people. There's 1.1 million Australians employed across Australia uh, in mining related jobs. And of course, it's not just if you're wearing high vis, if you're working in a restaurant that serves miners, if you're uh, in, a, in a coffee shop that takes up coffees to uh, to those high towers that are filled with mining executives, you too are part of this mining industry. And that is the stuff that means that Australia enjoys one of the highest, highest standards of living in the world. And it is only with high standards of living that we can afford to make choices. We can afford to have an NDIS program. We can afford to have great schools and hospitals. We can afford to invest in emissions reduction technology. Now, Regardless of what your belief is, and I personally think that this federal government is crueling and crippling Australia with its rushed, hasty uh, push towards bringing renewables on too quickly, but it is only these uh, prosperous, profitable countries and prosperous and possible prosperous and profitable mining companies that can afford to invest in environmental outcomes and great HR outcomes and have greater diversity, more environmental scientists. Mm. Only rich countries can do that. Mm. Poor countries can't afford to look after their environment. So it is really important that we commit to this terrific industry that allows Australia to be first in, in the world in so many areas. Mm. 
it is that prosperity that allows us to do that. Mm, absolutely. And it is it is so in large part thanks to mining that we actually have that prosperity. That's why it's mind blowing yeah. that it's such a culturally yeah. unfashionable industry. And I, I spoke about the, you know, policies that the cripple um, investment mm. in mining. And what's got a lot of people concerned is the Queensland state government's uh, coal royalty grab. That's just, uh, that has just come into effect. Um, that has massively jacked up the royalties on coal. Um, won't this mm. undermine the future of the industry that has actually done so much for uh, Queensland's growth? Yeah, it's now the highest royalty coal regime in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, it's madness, isn't it? Crazy. I know. It's shocking and it's madness because what the Queensland government has said is we're going to tax the good times. We're going to tax you when you have good uh, prices for coal. We're not going to be with, standing with you when they're poor, less than the cost of production prices. We're just going to tax the cream. And as any business knows, that's so unreasonable and unfair because an investment needs to take into account, you know, the highs and lows of the cycle. But Queensland, like this Labor federal government, both fund the Environmental Defender's Office. Mm. Federal government, $9.8 million to challenge government decisions. So between the, the layering of regulation from... Uh, from the federal government and the state government, uh, interventions into the gas market, royalty increases, industrial relations, the, uh, uh, the mandatory code of conduct, changes to the PRRT tax, all of these things is racing us towards Australia being uninvestable. Now, this is a shocking place to be, but when I see companies saying that Ecuador is more secure than Australia. When I see companies saying Indonesia is a more secure investment location than Australia, when I see companies saying they're exploring and investing in Alaska, Canada, <laughs> Mexico, over Australia, then we have a problem because, and we have to be very clear on this, Australians need to be very clear that this Labor government is driving investment offshore, they're in driving prosperity offshore, I don't want to look back as a grandmother, say to my kids, I remember when I grew up in a country that was so prosperous we had choices on how we invested our taxes. Mm. But that is exactly where this Labor government's taking us, Daisy, and we should be angry about it. Mm. We should be angry because we are so prosperous that we are now choosing to make impractical decisions that undermine our investability uh, in this nation. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 outrageous where it where it's going. Honestly, it's it's so short-sighted. Yes. Now, look, one yeah. of the chief complaints that complaints that we hear about mining is its impact on our environment, most notably climate change. But look, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask you anyway. Would shutting down or disincentivizing investment in mining, one of Australia's primary industries, even make one dent on the climate condition? Well, uh, uh, the number is 1.3% uh, of the world's emissions yeah. come out of Australia. And in return for that, we supply 
uh, thermal coal for steel making. We supply uh, nickel and copper and cobalt for uh, transmission lines and battery making. In fact, the, it is such an incredibly long list of what our minerals are used in. Our gas, our clean Australian natural gas, underpins the light staying on in Tokyo and Seoul. These are important trading relationships that our, our trade partners, our allies, rely on us to deliver. And uh, as we want to invest in more critical minerals, Australia has great provenance. We don't have to worry that uh, we have minerals coming out of places that have slave labour, mm. child labour. We, in fact, have a, a mining regime that is second to none in the world. Our standards, whether they be in uh, workplace health and safety, environment, uh, these are all the best. So why would you shut down investment in Australia to have it go offshore to countries where that is not the case? We mm. would actually have worse environmental outcomes, worse emissions, worse people outcomes, and Australia's, Australians would be poorer. I mean, Daisy, this is so dumb, uh, both from the Queensland State Government in its royalties decision and this Federal Labor Government, which is doing its absolute best to make sure that Australians of the future will be poorer with a lower quality of living and with less good environmental outcomes. Mm. Uh, you know, it's almost like the trifecta, isn't it? You know, how do we get the worst <laughs> outcome in every sector? And that's what Labor's running us towards. I know. It's extraordinary like, dangerous. It is extraordinary and dangerous. It's like they look at the world through sort of an opposite lens. Like, you know, they, they sort of see the opposite <laughs> outcome that they should be going for and, and then they kind of do oh. that. It's... It's very, very odd. Now, look, Susan. Uh, just before we go, I, I, you mentioned our for you know our allies and people who rely on Australia, you know, being able to keep its lights on. It's like the Queensland Palaszczuk government and federal Labor. They haven't actually considered the implications for uh, foreign relations, have they, when it comes to undermining Australia's mining industry? No, that, that's exactly right. Mm. And so we have trade partners who are also our allies in this geopolitical region that we, we live in, uh, who are now incredibly worried about, is Australia a reliable trade partner? Uh, I have heard incredible statements from Labor ministers saying, we absolutely guarantee that we will continue providing gas, but at the same time, the Treasurer has introduced legislation that will allow him to be the final decision maker on whether gas comes <laughs> into the domestic market or gas goes offshore. You cannot do both if we're not increasing supply. The government's own documents, uh, the consultation paper on future gas supply, shows gas demand increasing and gas supply falling. Mm. We will have gas shortages. We will have energy shortages. Thanks to this government's attack on uh, on everything that we do that makes us successful, and our allies are looking at us in terms of energy security, and they're also looking at us in terms of food security. Mm. So it is one of the greatest threats to the world is food security. Australia has a great responsibility to be supplying this fantastic food that we we grow here. We've got generations of expertise. We are a country that is mm. not subsidised in its agricultural production. Mm. Uh, we could be doing more in northern Australia, in, in a whole lot of places, and yet both governments are introducing 
a layering of approvals. And next week, we'll do the Nature Repair Bill. Now, it sounds nice, but it is another attack on farmers and farming. Absolutely. And we should worry about that, Daisy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, as you say, food security is so important and it's infuriating that we live in a country where our various Labor governments have this sort of mentality. Senator Susan Mm. MacDonald, it has been wonderful having you on the program this evening. Thank you so much for talking us through this incredibly important topic. Thanks, Daisy. Terrific to speak with you. Well, another week, another news poll. And if you thought the last one wasn't great for Anthony Albanese's Labor government, this one is even worse. For the first time since June 2021, the two-party preferred poll has the Coalition and Labor sitting at 50-50. This is a significant drop from Labor's high of 57% in last September. But as you can see from the graph, what will really alarm Labor is the speed of the drop over the last few months. Now, there are likely a few reasons for this sharp slip in a short time, one of which is obviously the botched Indigenous Voice to Parliament campaign. As for the others, certainly cost of living pressures will be contributing to what appears to be a growing resentment among the community at this apparently distracted, out-of-touch Labor government. But that's not the only piece of bad news for Labor from the news poll. Labor's primary vote has dropped a full 4% since the last news poll three weeks ago, from 35% to 31%. This is bad for Labor not just because of the loss in popularity, but because for the first time their primary vote has dropped below what was recorded on election day in May 2022, when Labor managed to win with a primary vote of just 32.6%. As for how cost of living pressures could be contributing to the decreasing popularity of the Albanese government, news poll also revealed 50% of voters feel they are worse off now than they were two years ago, with 60% of those aged 35 to 49 saying the same thing. Now, considering all of this, the time would seem ripe for the coalition to strike. There is so much fodder for them to dine out on. Whether it's Albo's many overseas trips, the ridiculous referendum nobody wanted, inflation, or, of course, Labor pig-headedly opposing nuclear energy in their quest for net zero, the coalition could hardly ask for more ammunition. But do they now, finally, have the gumption to put aside their paranoia at the left-wing media and Twitterati saying mean things about them and attack Labour where it hurts. Joining me to help answer that question is digital strategy expert James Flynn. James, it is fantastic to have you here. How are you doing this evening? Doing well. Yourself? I'm doing a very, very well, and I'm very intrigued by these latest news poll results. Now, look, James, Albanese is being attacked from every side, as, as he should be by the coalition on economy, climate, energy, foreign policy. 
What do you think the final nail in his coffin would have to be to ensure he doesn't see another term as Prime Minister? Well, I think doesn't see is probably the fair comment here. I think we have a Prime Minister who's not asleep at the wheel. I think he's blind and he is covering his ears and he doesn't want to listen to the problems. We have a Prime Minister who does not realise that cost of living is all that matters at this moment in time. I think the Australian people will happily send him home if they, he does not come up with a comprehensive plan and that plan cannot just be spending more money because that doesn't necessarily help. It means what are the reforms that this government will bring in to tax, to businesses, to help everyone reduce their costs and survive this cost of living crisis. It's not gonna stop and we are at this time the worst in the world. We are number one in terms of domestically generated inflation. That is uh, a pretty appalling statistic, the fact that we're the, the worst in the world in, in terms of domestic inflation. I, I mean, it's, it's more now, as the Reserve, new Reserve Bank governor said, it's more now than just overseas factors. It's these at-home factors as, as well. What do you think um, the Albanese government should do if they can do anything to stop this domestic inflation? Well, I, I hate to say I think they've been doing the opposite of what they should be doing. Um, industrial relation reforms that increased the cost of business and made it harder to find employees. Um, these are the things that you expect out of Labor, but again, unlike the predecessors like Keating and other generations, they're just doing ideological things, not things in context of what might actually help. Um, what we really need at this time is we need the government to improve competition. Um, we need to improve productivity and we need to incentivise people to stand up, start businesses, actually go and find jobs in ways that actually will then be able to produce more for our country. Mm. And look, what, what terrifies me about this Labor government is the fact that they're so iffy on the stage three tax cuts. Now, I know Al Bauer has said, you know, again and again when asked that he's not going to get rid of the stage three tax cuts. Jim Chalmers is, is I, I think, of the opinion that he wants to axe them. Um, could Labor be so stupid as to axe those stage three tax cuts? Oh, absolutely. There is no <laughs> question. I mean, I mean, at this point, stupid, not that that's a fair term, but I think stupid is probably the biggest driver of their policy. What, what are the policies they're trying to do to help Australians? That is a big black hole. And again, we've spent $300 million debating The Voice whilst we're silent at the wheel of this inflation crisis. So again, um, will the government continue to make errors? Yes. Can they help themselves? Yes. They should listen to the policies that people want, like reducing tax and improving productivity. Mm -hmm. And why, speaking of reducing tax, one quite simple thing that they could do to uh, reduce people's cost of living stress is to cut the excise tax again on fuel. Um, you know, there are some that say that that's inflationary, some people dispute that, but either way that seems to me, you know, rather than spraying money around, quite a, a simple way to relieve people's uh, budgets and gain some brownie points with the public. Why are they not cutting the excise tax? I Honestly, I, I cannot understand the pig-headedness. But I would say some goods, people need to realise that some goods, like petrol, are input costs for everything. And mm. so the price of petrol is far more impactful than, let's say, you know, the, the cost of other goods. And so to affect that and to remove the excise tax would actually flow through the economy in terms of bringing prices down. So, again, this pig-headedness isn't just about saying, hey, we can't spend money. It's about saying we're not even thinking about doing the most impactful things to help Australians. Mm. 
And look, pig-headed sort of is, is the operative word here uh, when it comes to the Albanese government. I mean, putting through that referendum, for instance, continuing to push it through, even when it, it, it turned out they would not have bipartisan support when Labor got a primary vote of just 32.6%. I mean, that alone should have been the warning for the Australian people to how this government was going to govern, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I think um, at this point, the Australian people are pretty good-willed and they want to help people. They want to help the Indigenous people, there's no question. But if you're not going to do that as part of a team and as part of Team Australia, again, you're going to lose. And so the Albanese, you know, sat down and refused to work with Dutton, mm. and that's the government we have now. And unfortunately, I think the Australian people are coming to reconcile what it is the government that they have chosen, and unfortunately, choosing Labor, you're getting this government you deserve. <laughs> Sadly. Sadly, that is the case. Now look, James, as the saying goes, um, strike while the iron is hot. And the iron is very, very hot now for Peter Dutton and the coalition to bring home uh, this next election. My concern with the coalition, um, especially the Liberal Party over the last few years, is that they're too worried about people in the left media saying mean things about them. We saw that with Malcolm Turnbull. We certainly saw that with Scott Morrison. Um, but now we have Dutton at the helm, Peter Dutton, who really doesn't seem to care very much at all what the media thinks of him, which is great. Do you think they are finally now up for the task of bringing home the next election? I think for the first time in several governments, we've seen this opposition, this Liberal Party coalition, um, stand up for values-based policy and win. And so I'm hoping, I, I don't know if they fully learnt the lesson, but I'm hoping that they can see that actually continuing to govern through the values that have proven to work for Australia for generations is actually what the Australian people want. They will be rewarded for it. Um, does this mean that we have learnt all those lessons? I don't think so. I think there's ways to go, especially in certain areas of policy. But again, if Peter can continue to stick by the values of the Liberal National Coalition, um, I think he's going to do very well. And again, we saw the voice get defeated phenomenally in mm. quite a significant failure of the Labor government. And at the end of the day, actually, for the last few weeks, Peter Dutton wasn't actually campaigning. The nation just was very decisive on this. Mm. Very, very much so. And look, on, this, on the subject of Peter Dutton, I mean, I, I, I really like Peter Dutton. He's, he's, he's a f fantastic leader. He was exactly the leader the party needed, certainly, um, at the, the, after the election last year. He was, he was just what they needed. Um, there's an argument, though, out there that Peter Dutton needs to kind of soften his image. He's had these tough portfolios for, you know, immigration and home affairs. He's an ex-cop. He's quite sort of, you know, severe in his attitude. When you get him chatting, of course, he's actually great fun. Like he's just, We know he's very funny. But there's an argument that he needs to kind of soften his image. I'm not necessarily sold on that argument. I think a lot of Australians kind of like a, a tough leader. But look, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's a few ways of viewing this problem. First of all, just to be fair, Pia's um, favourability numbers are lower than Albanese's. And yes. so that is a problem and he is obviously working on that. I think part of that is that he unfairly gets prosecuted for being this mean, you know, strong man. And I actually think that is a media onslaught that he just, you know, it's the it's the sort of the commentary that you get about his look of, of what he looks like. And I don't think that's reasonable nor fair. Mm. Um, do we want to see Peter Dutton as a more normal person being able to have a beer in a pub with everyday Australians? Absolutely. And I think he's working on that. Um, do we see him now leading in policy and actually thought leadership for the country? Yes. 
And so again, I don't think Australians would hold it against Peter Dutton to say, we don't think you're that relatable, but you are standing up for the things that we care about, like inflation, like cost of living. And I think that will cut through at the end of the day. You can have a really nice looking guy, maybe you say that's Albanese, but at the end of the day, he didn't listen to the Australian people and that's what matters. Mm, I mean, that's a good point. There's, uh, particularly with conservatives, uh, I mean, I think they're looking for different people in, in their leaders than people on the left are. And you, you saw this sort of with Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump, he's, I love Donald Trump, he's brash and he's, you know, he's a bit rude sometimes and, you know, but he, can, and he comes across as a head kicker, which of course had sort of moderates and leftists, you know, freaking out. But from a, a conservative perspective, I don't feel like we look to our leaders to be quote unquote nice guys. We want them to go in and fight in the arena of politics for our interests and for our values. Do you think maybe uh, Peter Dutton has a chance to capitalise on that attitude for, for, uh, from Conservatives? Absolutely. And I think he already has. I think the voice, his stance on the voice and his, you know, it, it took a lot of gall to stand up and say, we will, we do not think this is the right thing and we will not stand behind it. And then the Australian people agreed with him. I think he will continue to do that. Um, again, how he seeks to do that probably is, is important. Again, we have not a get out the vote system of politics here. We have a everyone has to vote and so that marginal voters do matter. And so I think it's about saying how can he appeal to those marginal voters that matters most at this time. Um, but again, he's talking about all the right things and, and the Liberal National Coalition is still talking about all the right things mm. for them to win this election. Mm. I, I certainly hope you're right, James. Certainly I'm a lot more optimistic about uh, the Coalition and the Liberal Party, especially at the moment than I have been um, for several years. Now, James, just before we go, just quickly, uh, we heard a few days ago that one of the immigration detainees released in Australia in recent weeks has gone missing. He had reportedly refused to wear an ankle monitor and is now free in the community. Labor's being very silent about efforts to relocate the detainee. Uh, I don't think this is likely to fare very well in the public eye, do you? I just think Labor has had for the last 10 years just failed at immigration. Mm -hmm. Again, it, they got schooled by Tony Abbott on stopping the boats, which is now their policy. Again, when they've been now vetting, um, vetting refugees from Gaza, um, there's question marks around their security uh, access and, you know, how they vetted them. I just think Labor is not very good at immigration and not very good at that broader national security posture. So I've I got to say, Australians are a-okay with immigrants. There's no question about that. Mm. But again, it's a question about how does the government manage that process? And they do not do that well. Um, again, I think there's a lot of pressures here at home as well. So to say, hey, we've now let, um, you know, a, a refugee, you know, go walking without supervision is going to cause a lot of consternation. Again, not because they're an immigrant, just because government policy is failing under mm. Albanese. Mm -hmm. I think you are absolutely spot on. James Flynn, it has been delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the program tonight and I do hope we can see you again soon. Thanks so much, Daisy. Well, that's all we have time for this evening on The Daisy Cousin Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Thank you so much to my guests and to everyone who makes this show possible. Up next is The Other Side with Damien Khoury. Good night, world. I'll see you next week.